Dear listeners of Consumer Choice Radio, my name is Bill Wirtz and I host Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. Consumer, that's spelled with EU, appears weekly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and covers weekly updates on new rules and regulations in Europe and updates on European politics. This is a 30-minute podcast with clips and interesting guests. So if you're interested in hearing more from the European conversation of the Consumer Choice Center, tune in every Thursday wherever you listen to podcasts. As you can hear, a complimentary British accent is included. See you Thursday. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you across North America. This is the internationally syndicated program that focuses on consumer choice, the important news that you need, great interviews, analysis, and more. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki. We're broadcasting on the Big Talker 1067 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM out of the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. Things are going well here on my side of the world. Figured I'd check in with my colleague David Clement in Toronto. David, I'm uh, throwing the nickel at you. How you doing today? Oh, doing all right. Doing all right. Starting to feel like spring is in the air, but for most Canadians, we know that that is a naive opinion to have because we are now through our first winter, and that is usually... Uh, compounded by a second winter when we get a random snowstorm at like the end of March. Um, but yeah, not, 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 do, not doing too bad. Lots to talk about. We have great guests this week, um, some fantastic guests. Uh, I'll let you uh, let our listeners know who is on the docket for today. Yeah, so great, uh, great guests that David was able to line up uh, and myself. So number one will be None other than Mr. Steve Forbes, uh, the famed financier, uh, the titular head of Forbes, uh, the media empire, and a former presidential candidate, someone who's yes. definitely had a, a big influence in the financial scene and the business world. Uh, so a very good conversation with him on everything related to the COVID stimulus bill in the United States and everything related yep. to the market's uh, democratization of finance and everything else. So, David, uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun for the listeners. We'll, I think we'll put that up uh, for segment one. Yeah, and funny enough, this week I was randomly watching Jeopardy, and, and none other than Steve Forbes was the answer to the to one of the questions about the American media and business space. So, oh, I, th I thought uh, he would have been the guest host or something. That would have been even better. Uh, Right? That would have been cool. He's, he's on Jeopardy. It's like, all right, you guys can check me on Consumer Choice Radio coming up this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, segment one. We'll be talking to Steve Forbes, a great conversation, so please do stick around for that. And then we'll also be speaking with Dr. Kimberly Josephson. Uh, she's an uh, assistant professor of business at the Lebanon Valley College in Pennsylvania. So she's all about business and the understandings of the psychologies behind it, the different theories uh, and definitely the educating the next generation of business students. And we're talking about some of her articles related to tech uh, companies, corporations, whether or not they cater to consumers and uh, sort of the new realm of woke capital. 
as some people have named it. So that'll be in segment two. Very awesome uh, conversation with her. And, uh, you know, shake it up a little bit. We don't often have uh, university professors. Um, she's also the dean of, of one of the, the graduate success centers there. So we don't often get too many academics on the program. We're, I guess we're, we're pretty reliant, David, on uh, normal politicians or uh, business guys or, or some think tankers. Yeah, yeah, it is nice to have a professorial view on Consumer Choice Radio. Could you imagine if we both were like in academia full-time and we could just churn out papers all the time on all the topics that we talk about? That would be fantastic. You have like research assistants, and I only say that because I was one at one point, just research assistants to pile all the data in together and you just whip it up into some nice, concise academic argument. Bam, it's in a major journal, you're famous. Yeah, but also because nice. uh, uh, I remember talking to Phil Magnus, um, I think for this program or another one, and he's someone who, I mean, I don't know, his his Google Scholar page is just full of all these papers. I mean, the guy's like, I don't know, 30-something, and essentially writing like two papers a month. And it's like the amount of detail you're able to go into, but the mm -hmm. entire process just sounds terrible. It sounds much worse than an op-ed editor at a news organization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly more tedious. I think That's the only true. person I know with that level of writing production is our colleague, Bill, who seems to just write while he's sleeping, apparently, because that guy is just a machine. That's true. Yes. And uh, if you guys haven't already, please do go listen to the Consumer Podcast, uh, Consumer EU in there, that is hosted by our colleague, Bill. He essentially does a uh, more hilarious version of this program in the EU. <laughs> uh, but he, he has on some, some very great guests, and he'll have an awesome one this week uh, with Ryan Heath, who's an editor over there at Politico, uh, formerly Politico Europe, and I think he's doing Politico UN now or something like this. But Bill yep. does a sort of week-by-week -week analysis of all the consumer issues that are happening in the European Union and also has great interviews and such. You can find links to that on our site, the newly designed website over there on consumerchoiceradio.com. And uh, we've made this website sleek and nice, easy to use. You have all the videos as well of people that we're able to interview and talk to, and all of the show notes that are now in embedded form. Just looks a lot better for you guys. So I hope you enjoy. Use that as a resource, and be sure that anytime that we discuss something or mention back, uh, check out that website, and we'll have all the latest details there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Check that out. It looks great. So apart from, uh, you know, our nice little intros, David, uh, there's a couple things that we have on the docket. Um, something that we cannot pass up because we, I think we talked about it a lot over the summer uh, was the ascendancy of uh, Mr. Um, gubernatorial uh, God of the COVID crisis. Uh, that is the New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. And yeah. I believe we had a very, very, uh, I would say, harsh critique back then that was mm -hmm. related to the nursing homes and uh, essentially how many people had passed away because of the policy of sending the COVID-positive patients back in. It did not get too much play. You know, it was uh, somewhat filling up the right-wing uh, news outlets. Uh, but now it has come into a full-blown story. It's been covered by the New York Times. He's been grilled about it at various press conferences. And that added to apparently some kind of sexual harassment allegations. 
might be the end of our uh, pandemic governor, who was supposed to be the foil to Trump throughout this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people were were slating him as one of the serious contenders. Now, this was before Biden won, but they were putting him at the at, at prospectively at the top of the ticket for the Democrats, just because of how much he was adored. And so, you have the nursing home crisis. You have the fact that they underreported. Um, those deaths, which seems to be for some pretty suspect reasons. And now you have some, some serious allegations of uh, sexual misconduct. So it does look like his future is very quickly unraveling. And th- that is an interesting point, I think, for everything that we discuss, because New York presented one model of how to deal with the crisis with the Carol Baskins virus. That was one model, and that has been either heralded in the cases of, of people like Fauci or other people, or, or it has been, you know, highly criticized because they've, they've bungled many parts of this. It's just very strange the treatment that the state of Florida will get, uh, which has been fairly open most of the time, uh, versus New York, even though there are less deaths in Florida overall. It's this kind of strange political, you know, I think it just makes everybody very cynical, David. And at least for me, you know, comparing these jurisdictions and making it about personality, it's like, I don't know, this is, we're having somewhat of a debate about the role of government and how to deal with pandemics. But at the end of the day, it's just a lot more about personalities and just how close people are to Trump or something. I think that was one of the huge negatives that maybe the Cuomo scandal will like rid us from the Trump era is that everything was bound in personality whether you were pro or against Trump largely rested on his like personal conduct, um, which obviously you and I certainly weren't fans of. Uh, But then it also applied to people really kind of fawning over whomever was, was the deemed the reasonable alternative um, Cuomo being one of them. So hopefully now we can get back to evaluating the politics of the day having some serious conversations beyond people's personalities. And that looks like that is uh, roaring headfirst towards Andrew Cuomo. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll see a little bit more accountability uh, in terms of how these politicians are dealt with. Whether or not that will apply to Trudeau here still remains to be seen. I'm not sure what the recent polls show, but um, that still certainly remains to be seen. Uh, how it impacts Ontario's Premier Doug Ford still remains to be seen, but um, hopefully what can come out of this is a higher degree of accountability. Yeah, and, uh, you know, related to this and to, you know, going back to, you know, criticizing policies rather than personalities, uh, this has played out a little bit in North Carolina uh, this week. I was following this. This has to do with the reopening of the schools, And uh, there actually was a bill that was put together by the Republicans, which do control the Senate and the House. And the idea was that they were trying to open schools and say that K through 12 education would be in person and it would start in, I think it was about two weeks. And it was uh, passed by the House, went to the governor, and the governor vetoed it and said, no, we will not open those schools up in that way. And uh, the legislature, normally they do a lot of uh, veto overrides, uh, but this time they were not able to get the votes. It was blocked by some Democratic senators, 
And uh, that means that uh, we essentially do not have a statewide plan for the opening of schools. There's still a lot of local jurisdictions that have decided to go back fully, but there's no a state order. And this is, it's, it's very interesting because many of the Democrats, they ask them, it's like, well, why are you, why are you not going with the veto or overriding the veto of this bill? Because you've actually been very open to say that we need to have our schools open. And their principal response is, well, the governor is a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. That's it. Yeah, party lines. <laughs> yeah, par- party lines. That's, That's it. Yeah, There's no substantive, you know, thing. I mean, it's just back to the normal partisan hackery. Uh, I think it's it's quite unfortunate. We've talked about the schools before, but uh, mm-hmm. I mean, surely for a lot of people, it's very very concerning. I mean, we're going to have an entire generation, an entire year of people who, you know, have been staring at screens, haven't been very productive. Uh, imagine, David, if we're at the you know, we're at the end of our university career and that's where we're at. And I don't know, just feel as if I would not have much motivation and I wouldn't feel ready for the the job force. (laughs) No. And I know that it's incredibly difficult, especially for the younger students to actually try and teach these kids virtually. Like, I mean, one anecdote is, is one of my nephews who I, I think he's in kindergarten. He, uh, he demanded that he sit in his online classroom with his snowmobile helmet on. Um, so, <laughs> so there he is sitting, looking through tinted, tinted plexiglass on a adult sized uh, snowmobile helmet. And it's like, how do imagine you're the teacher and you, you boot up the computer. You're like, all right, kids. And you're like, um, Jimmy, uh, what, what are you, what are you wearing? <laughs> Can you wow. even hear with that thing on? <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it's probably, it's been a battle for teachers, which is in some jurisdictions, you see them kind of clamoring to get back. Yeah. And then in others, you see them highly, highly resistant to going back. And what the, I think the real issue is that in some U.S. jurisdictions, teachers were moved up the line for vaccinations. And so they were kind of treated like first responders, which I think you could make a good argument for, because you can't vaccinate the kids. Um, and so to move up the line and then not return to in-person instruction just seems a little, that seems awkward to me. And there's been a lot of muddying of the waters by the CDC, uh, the new head of the CDC, uh, because they've been talking about how even if teachers are vaccinated, they have to look at community spread. And if the numbers in a community are high enough, that means they're going to keep the schools closed. It's just, all this stuff is insane. And um, forgive me, that's ableist. I think that's what they say. I think with that, there's going to be a lot more that will come to the fore. I know it's definitely going to energize many people. I mean, there might be a lot of people who, when midterms come around or when we start talking about elections again, they're going to remember how their kids were treated. And I think mm-hmm. it, oh, that's yeah. that's something that we can never discount. Uh, we got much more to come on Consumer Choice Radio. We've got uh, Steve Forbes coming up, segment one, uh, ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. You guys uh, stay tuned, and I'll be right back after this. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California. And we are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I have the pleasure of uh, introducing uh, one of our guests for this week's program. He is a uh, recurring guest now on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Steve Forbes. Good to be with you. Thank you. Great. So, I mean, we're, we're 
uh, on the cusp of a 1.9 trillion uh, with a T trillion uh, dollar COVID relief bill. And we couldn't think of someone better to talk to than yourself about the good, the bad and the ugly in this bill. So uh, what do you see? What's good? What's bad? Um, what's ugly in, in Biden's kind of core piece of legislation or so early on in his administration? Well, despite the name of the bill, it's mostly a uh, political payoff to the Speaker of our House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, and key constituency in the uh, Democratic Party. Only very generously looking at that uh, 1.9 trillion U.S., only about uh, you take a very generous out, uh, look at the bill. Only about 600 billion really relates to the COVID uh, relief, including checks to uh, individuals of an additional $1,400. Uh, to uh, the 600 that uh, went out a few weeks ago. The rest of it is uh, political pork and payoffs. There are over, over $350 billion to uh, various states and cities. Uh, that's, to, uh, that's a disguised bailout for mismanaged states. They jiggered the formula in this bill to favor uh, uh, blue states, as we call them, <clears throat> Democrat states that have been mismanaged, uh, such as New York, California, Illinois, New Jersey, and others while the so-called red states uh, get punished, who have managed their finances well. There's a huge <clears throat> payoff of over $86 billion to various union-run uh, pension funds that have been uh, grossly mismanaged and uh, not funded properly. So when you look at the pieces of it, it is uh, really uh, an abomination. If they just wanted to focus on COVID relief, they could do it for <clears throat> a fraction of that price, especially as the U.S. economy continues to show great resilience and strength. Moreover, we've got uh, the third vaccine from Johnson & Johnson uh, now out there, which means uh, by the latest June uh, that we will have uh, what, do you, what they call herd immunity. Um, and uh, literally hundreds of uh, millions of uh, doses are now going to be produced. So the coronavirus crisis uh, is receding. And uh, the U.S. economy, you look at various measures, whether it's uh, manufacturing, retail sales and the like, is ready to roar. But unfortunately, the Biden administration is putting obstacles in the way, including this mammoth bill. And one way they're going to finance this bill is by printing the money, and that's going to create problems down the road. Definitely. Uh, Steve, this is Yael here. A question that I had is, in the alternate reality of a, of a President Forbes, uh, you talked about how this is not really going to help individual people. What, what would have been an alternative relief bill that would not have included all of these payoffs? Would that have been uh, sort of just in direct payments again, or perhaps not at all? Or what would a better recovery plan or relief bill have looked like here in the in the first uh, first term? Uh, well, the, the, the recovery would have focused on uh, first uh, businesses that were hurt, uh, especially small businesses by the uh, shutdown uh, from the pandemic. And uh, there's some money in there for that, but what uh, the program called the payroll uh, relief, uh, what they call PPP, payroll uh, relief, is uh, getting only $7 billion. They haven't loosened restrictions on small businesses qualifying for these grants and loans. So uh, in those particulars, in terms of helping small business, they could have done better. It wouldn't have cost much more, and they could have swept away a lot of the what I think were stupidly conceived regulatory bureaucratic obstacles put in by our Treasury Department. 
that would have been good. Uh, getting money out to help uh, more vaccine distribution, that's fine. If you wanted to do another payoff to people, that would have been fine, even though I'm a conservative and most conservatives oppose it. I was in favor of those individual checks uh, because they're one time. They don't uh, to distort the labor market and uh, they give people immediate relief. Uh, but the provisions they have in for topping up unemployment benefits will give millions of people, uh, pay them more not to work. We already have over 6 million job vacancies in the U.S., and they're rising as this economy recovers. So it would have been a much more focused approach, uh, helping individuals uh, directly, helping businesses. I also would have gone for uh, suspending the payroll tax in the U.S., which is about 15 percent, which hits people from the first dollar they earn. The U.S. income tax uh, doesn't really hit the most low income, lower income people. Uh, they get hit by state income taxes, but not by the federal. But uh, something that was done uh, on a smaller scale uh, uh, back under Barack Obama, President Obama, back in 2011, 2012, they had a small suspension of the payroll tax. I'd have done one six months or 12 months. That would have given uh, both uh, individuals especially lower-income individuals, a big pay increase, and also would have lowered the cost of hiring people uh, for by, by businesses. So it would have been win-win. So uh, And I would have cut out all this other pork, that they, uh, the junk they put in there. So it would have done a lot of good, had a lot of positive incentives, and uh, would have cost a fraction of what they're doing now. And the key thing to keep in mind is that to finance this, they're not going to just finance it by floating more bonds. They're going to affect have the bonds be bought uh, indirectly by the Federal Reserve, which means creating more money. And if you look at the U.S. banking system today, they are overloaded by a factor of several times of uh, necessary reserves. So uh, uh, the, 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 this uh, money printing is going to be the old kind. I think it's going to uh, have a danger of inflation later this year and early next year, and that's going to create unnecessary problems for the economy. Uh, the, our, our central bank does not know how to deal with this, I don't think. But it was all unnecessarily self-created. On on that note of inflation, because that's something that Yael and I um, have, have spoken about previously. Our last episode touched on this. How How resilient do you think the U.S. economy can be to these inflationary pressures? Because I know that there are some... Um, in in that world, who say it's not a problem, inflation is not in, is is not coming. There are others who are maybe very loudly ringing alarm bells, saying that this kind of house of cards can only stand for so long. I'd love to hear your take on what that inflation could look like. I know you mentioned the latter half of this year, um, but walk our listeners through what this could look like if inflation does start to creep up on us. Well, what it, what it does mean is that uh, prices, consumer prices, start to rise, and uh, we haven't had a real binge of that uh, since the 1970s, the early 1980s, when it was finally conquered in the U.S. and in the most of the rest of the world. And uh, it's very distortive of the economy, especially hurts uh, small businesses and uh, job creation, and uh, <clears throat> so it, it does it does real harm. And one of the big mistakes is that uh, those who say, oh, well, printing money doesn't matter anymore, ignoring places like Venezuela, they say it doesn't matter because look what happened after the 2008-2009 crisis. 
Uh, the Federal Reserve did a lot of uh, creation, uh, bought a lot of bonds, what they call quantitative easing. But what gets overlooked is that the banks at the time uh, had to rebuild their balance sheets. Uh, they had to rebuild their reserves. And uh, then you had uh, what they call Basel III, which is an international agreement on capitalization for banks. Nobody knows about it. It's one of those obscure things that's out there but has real consequences. And uh, the Basel, uh, uh, Basel III, as they call it, Switzerland, where they did this agreement, uh, those reserve requirements were met uh, months ago by U.S. banks. So U.S. banks are chock full of reserves, unlike with the situation of 12 years ago where they had to rebuild balance sheets. So the money that the Fed creates now is more likely to get shot into the economy, whereas the, uh, what they call quantitative easing, the huge amount of uh, money creation the Fed did after 2008, in effect, went into the deep freeze. Uh, banks parked the money at the Fed, got a little bit of interest on the excess reserves. But uh, we don't have that situation today in the sense that uh, the banks don't have to rebuild their balance sheets. So if the Fed doesn't know what it's doing in terms of sterilizing this massive money creation from these bills that are being passed. And remember, the last bill that was passed in December and, the, the, and previous bills passed last year, COVID relief bills, there's over a trillion dollars still unspent. So you've got this new near $2 trillion of legislation going through. You have $1 trillion that still is unspent, which means that this money is going to be flowing in the economy not just this year, but hundreds of billions are going to be flowing into the economy next year at a time when uh, the pandemic is, uh, for all intents and purposes, over. Now, Steve, last question before we go to break here on uh, Consumer Choice Radio. We've had over the last two months a, a huge emphasis on financial markets and individual investors, retail investors, this entire revolution with Robin Hood and democratization of finance and investing. What are your thoughts on this? Is this something that uh, is interesting? Does it pose a threat uh, to many of the main people on Wall Street? Is this something that uh, we can look forward to in the future? Or do you think this is a temporary fad? Uh, in, individuals getting involved in the market, no, especially the big difference between this and other uh, episodes in the past is that we have zero commissions. You don't pay commissions anymore on stock trades, which is phenomenal. And uh, so it's, it's costless to go in and out, in and out, in and out. And uh, what you saw with the uh, game uh, Stop and others is uh, we've seen this movie in variations before. People will get uh, there, there, there gets to be a mania. They pile in. In this case, they uh, smash the short, the big short institutional short sellers, which everyone applauded because nobody likes short sellers, even though short selling has a real uh, and necessary place in the financial and economic universe. Everyone hates them, just like everyone hates hyenas or sharks and things like that. They do have their place in the scheme of things, and uh, and so uh, and so. Uh, 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 we've already seen uh, GameStop uh, have a, a huge rise and then huge falls. So a lot of people are going to get hurt. And uh, you have to learn what rises rapidly doesn't necessarily stay up. It goes up and down. And not all stocks uh, rise up. Uh, some of them do, but a lot of them don't. And uh, you know, you remember 20 years ago, Amazon, you, know, you had the high-tech bubble in the U.S., which crashed spectacularly. A lot of individuals got hurt. A lot of institutions got hurt. Most of those uh, high-tech uh, stocks went uh, went bankrupt, but the few that uh, survived 
uh, did very well. Amazon had a stock then was a hundred bucks a share. Went down to, when the crash came. Went down to under ten dollars a share. Today it's over three thousand dollars a share. So there'll be some survivors, but a lot won't survive. And individual investors and institutional investors always have to learn the lesson. Human emotions can get carried away. You can say it again and again, but it always happens. It's human nature. So this generation of investors, they'll be in the market, but a lot of them are going to learn. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a dangerous place if uh, you're, you're not careful. And one, one quick follow-up on that, because I know there was a congresswoman who proposed adding additional taxes on, on trading so that there is a commission. Would that be appropriate policy, or would that just hurt, hurt low, lower-income or retail investors? It, it, it would hurt. And uh, it, you know, the politicians are always looking for ways to pick your pockets. And so if they put on a transaction tax, they all get mesmerized. Oh, we can get uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in from this. They don't realize in this high-tech age, those trades can be uh, executed offshore very easily electronically. In New York State, uh, uh, they are talking about a transaction tax. And uh, both the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ made quite clear if they do that in the state of New York, they can easily move their uh, operations to Austin, Texas, or Dallas, Texas. And Texas has already been talking to them, hey, we're, we'll welcome you with open arms. So uh, uh, stop taxing people, reduce the tax burden on people, and by golly, government will get the revenues because when the economy prospers, government always gets its cut. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for joining us again. Uh, it's been about a year since we last had you on, and I hope that if we do have you on in one year's time, we are no longer talking about COVID-19 and relief bills and all of this crazy spending. Uh, I have a feeling like when we do chat with you down the road, we'll, prob we'll probably still be talking about those things, but uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for uh, your insight. Really uh, good fun being with you, and I hope the Biden administration learns sooner uh, rather than later that sometimes less is more. If they did nothing except uh, open up the economy, get kids back in school, economy alone, they'd look like geniuses in six months because things would be really booming. <laughs> Perfectly said. Thank you, Steve. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM. We are very delighted for our next guest on the program. We have Dr. Kimberly Josephson. She is an assistant professor of business and the associate dean for the Breen Center for Graduate Success at the Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. Dr. Josephson, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here course. And uh, I wanted to highlight uh, two articles of yours that we will put in the show notes that people will be able to see afterwards. The first one, why competition is the antidote to big tech's bad behavior, not politician. If given a chance, the market will eventually provide solutions to many of the grievances stemming from big tech's clumsy efforts to control user content. This is obviously still a very hot topic. Uh, we have an entire... Uh, were deluged with all the different congressional testimonies and, and speech online 
Um, if you could kind of summarize for our listeners, what was your thought in sort of penning this article and, and what is your reaction to everything we've seen uh, the last uh, several months over free speech concerns and, and different companies and, and how legislation plays into it? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, something that I pointed out in the article is that there's always been an ever-present concern for monopolies, right? Control of the market. Uh, but really, whenever there's a demand in the market, entrepreneurs, opportunists, they'll respond to it. Uh, and so it's, it's best to kind of let the market sort things out, because when you have government interference or policy that comes into play, that could actually deter uh, those opportunists, those entrepreneurs to want to take advantage and get involved. Um, and so in the article, I even reference how, you know, the big box stores were going to replace the mom and pop shops. And now you have the online e-tailers that are replacing the big box stores um, and things like that. And so the best thing to do is really just to kind of let, you know, let time play out. And as we see, actually, um, we do have a whole slew of different platforms that are popping up. It seems like almost daily, right? Uh, so right now, like Clubhouse is now the hot new cool thing. Um, and, and so these different channels, they'll, they'll come about if there's a need. Um, whenever, you know, you have a supposed monopoly, it's usually because that is the uh, leader in the industry, which means that they're doing something right. So sometimes it takes a while for entrepreneurs to leverage uh, what it is others are doing, learn by doing, um, and then figure out, okay, how can I do this better? And if this is the top leader, right, I'm going to learn from it. And then I'm also going to try to outperform them. So Facebook and Twitter, yeah, they were they were the leaders. And in terms of um, wanting to censorship or things of that nature, in all honesty, that's in their power to do. It's their company. Um, it is their platform. Um, and yes, it's disheartening for those that really are, were enjoying those free services, but essentially they were even free services. It's not even like they were taking things away from us that we, uh, we paid for. It was something that we were using and then, you know, they decided to self-regulate. And I think big tech is even a little unsure of, uh, you know, how they should deal with free speech concerns because some of them have even reached out saying, hey, government regulate us, help us. We don't even know how to navigate this. And that's really strange to me. Um, so once again, in, in my article, I kind of just focus on, hey, you know, do we really want to get government involved? Do we really want more policies? Because once you do that, it's hard to retract it, right? Once government gets, and, and also we could attribute the success of big tech to the limited regulations that happened early on. Because uh, government didn't know how to regulate big tech. If you think in regards to really um, innovative industries, ones that are growing quickly, it's the ones where government has the least interference. Um, think about Uber and Airbnb and all those and how that sprung up so quickly. And then the government was like, how do we regulate this? How do we you know, manage it? And it's creating these complications now after the fact. Um, but less interference is usually better because once that interference uh, starts, it does make it more difficult for new entrants to come in, uh, creates a deterrence maybe for entrepreneurs who want to enter. And, uh, and once again, you, you, it's hard to take away policy once it's put in place. Yeah, it's funny, whenever I see politicians kind of clamoring on about monopolistic status, I, I tend to bring up the old headlines from the MySpace era when they were essentially saying the same thing, MySpace is so powerful. Is MySpace ever going to lose its monopoly status? And I mean, for a lot of people listening on the radio now, 
I don't know, maybe half of them probably have no idea what MySpace even is, um, let alone what it was sold for and, and all of those things. So it's always interesting to see these arguments replicate themselves over the span of 15, 20 years, where I'm sure if we were to revisit this again, so long as um, barriers to entry are not put up, we could be having a similar conversation and be like, oh yeah, remember when we used to post things on Facebook? And, and, and our kids or grandkids will look at us and be like, dad, you're being old now. Like, why are you talking about Facebook? Um, but on, oh, on, completely. yeah. And I actually really appreciate that you brought up MySpace because I was a late adopter to Facebook. I loved my MySpace. I was a big fan, right? And that was a way to show your music and how you were cool and things like that. And your top friends. Your top six yeah. friends. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, now students, you know, all of my students at LBC, Lebanon Valley College, you know, they almost, oh, Facebook's not that cool anymore. It's not that hip. Actually, Twitter and Facebook are, are used a lot by kind of, um, once again, the older generation and even legacy media and things. So they're figuring out, you know, how to use TikTok and these other forms. And, you know, so by the time, uh, by the time maybe government figures out how to regulate Facebook, uh, probably won't matter. <laughs> mm. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. Uh, one line that I wanted to go back to in your article. So like any vice that is in our life, individuals need to take on some personal accountability for what has transpired in the online and trading realms. Uh, you were also speaking about the GameStop frenzy and some of the investing stuff. And this is, uh, you know, from a, I guess, many weeks ago. So there's so much that's transpired. Uh, talk us through that as well, because we don't often talk about personal responsibility or accountability uh, when it comes to using these platforms. It's always assumed that the only people who get to make any decisions in this realm are the companies and the government. And it seems as if consumers are kind of left out. Right, right. Well, and, and calling the device too is, is, I guess, just a personal opinion in that, you know, we've become somewhat obsessed with the online realm and with our phones and what are people saying and how many people are liking things. I mean, I'll be honest, even with my article, it's like, ooh, how many people liked it? Did anyone share it, right? So we become like kind of, you know, enthralled with these forms to interact and engage. And there is, a, in a sense, the madness of crowds. And so like with what we saw happen with GameStop, like that was just kind of wild and, and, and unique. And that was all done on the online, online realm and thinking like, hey, we're going to, we're going to, you know, tear down the system or we're going to rework it. And it's like, what is your actual goal? What are you really looking to accomplish, right? So a lot of these, um, you know, when you hear people speaking out about things, but there's no other alternative, or maybe even not a full understanding of how this works, how hedge funds work, how trading stocks work, like, hey, you should have someone um, who knows how to invest to help you and, and, and guide you through this process. Um, so yeah, so it just, it was just kind of interesting that all of this stuff was happening around the same time. So the concern of big tech censorship and then, you know, the GameStop, uh, you know, kind of mob almost that happened. And, and people were saying, the government needs to do something, right? We need policies. This shouldn't happen. It should be regulated. And it's kind of like, well, you know what? Sometimes we need to be allowed to make mistakes, right? And realize, oh, that was not a smart move. Oh, I shouldn't have posted that online. Or maybe I shouldn't be following you know this influencer or yeah if i'm going to make a big investment let me go through the proper channels and make sure that i'm smart about that investment um you know 
once again, once government gets involved, and, and this is not to say that government shouldn't, you know, play a role at all, but the more we use government as a crutch and rely on it and seek allotments or safety nets or safe, yeah, safety nets or what have you, um, you know, it's, it's hard to then take away, once again, that interference and that autonomy. Um, something I find really interesting because I am a business professor, so in my courses at LBC, uh, we talk about there's been a real dramatic shift within organizations um, that focus on the empowerment of employees and granting autonomy and the decentralization of power. And companies are seeing that their organizations are much more productive, uh, have a better work culture when there is this kind of flexible environment of here are our goals, here are the tasks that need to happen, but I'm gonna let you figure it out, right? And I'm gonna provide the resources needed and support if you need it, but really, you know, this is, this is your responsibility, have at it, right? And, and we encourage you to collaborate and network with others within the industry and sector. Um, granting that autonomy and giving that power to employees is, is proving to have a very positive effect. So I don't know why in society, we don't take that same approach we look really to government as in this kind of top-down control, whereas, you know what, as individuals, we should be engaged in our own communities, in our own societal welfare within those communities, um, and have that decentralization of power and autonomy in regards to what it is we decide to support um, or not. Yeah, it's funny. You should send some of that research to Paul Krugman because he just wrote an absolutely terrible op-ed in the New York Times basically saying, Americans have too much choice, they're too dumb, they make mistakes, and we need to stop that. Uh, but quickly uh, pivoting to your, your second article in regards to corporations meeting consumer, um, consumer demand or what consumers want rather than catering to causes. Uh, walk our listeners through what your argument is and if you could maybe help us find the line between when causes and consumer demand merge, because obviously I can think of several instances where uh, corporate interests do kind of blend the two, um, but I'm interested to hear what your, your take is on where kind of co corporate social responsibility has gone as of late. Sure, sure. Yeah, so once again, as a business professor, we talk about kind of, um, theory and history in regards to business practices. And there are these eras of marketing that organizations have gone through in regards to you know, the production era. This is what we make, take it or leave it. The selling era um, in terms of, okay, you know, we're gonna leverage economies of scale. And the more we produce, the more we can sell, and the more we can sell, the more money we're gonna make. And then you have the rise of like intense competition where organizations realize, okay, no, we need to have this marketing concept in, not just in terms of what it is we sell, but how it generates value for the consumer. And then also even differentiation, um, yeah, differentiation strategies in regard to branding, um, the total offering, the package. So it's not just a car, right? It's the status symbol, it's a certain brand, it's a certain, it has certain features. And then we're at this now, this new era of kind of this, um, you know, concern for society. And this is another way for companies to differentiate themselves, right? Um, I might have a great, you know, yeah, brand. I might have a great slogan. I might really appeal to consumers. But once again, competition is so intense. So how can I 
further create not just an appeal, but almost an emotional bond with my consumers, right? Because emotions actually serve as uh, kind of like a cementing um, element in regards to relationships, right? And so organizations look to do that as well. Um, there's also been a, a push for kind of the stakeholder mindset where organizations, you know, need to think more broadly. Um, I, I often use, uh, I call it the spice model with my students, whereas we think in terms of our stakeholders as our, our um, society at large, our partners, so meaning kind of suppliers, distributors, um, investors, customers, and employees. Those are kind of like your core stakeholders. Um, and if we're thinking about those, right, different organizations might prioritize uh, different aspects at different times. So some might feel like, hey, I need to focus my efforts more towards customer satisfaction, whereas other organizations might say, hey, I need to really focus on my employees. If my employees are happy, they're going to be more productive and better, which is going to spill over to my customers being happier and better. Um, but this greater focus on societal welfare is kind of a slippery slope um, because you know, it's going outside the realm of business. Um, you know, you, you went into business to produce something, to sell something. We've been speaking with Dr. Kimberly Josephson here on Consumer Choice Radio. She's an assistant professor of business and the associate dean for the Breen Center for Graduate Success at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. Dr. Josephson, thanks so much for being on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I can barely crawl, I've got to walk with his angels, feel a tree. And that does it for us here on Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting on Saga 960 AM every Thursday at 1 p.m. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.